0: There's a guy at a gas station I call Mr. Happy because he's always in a good mood and is so enthusiastic to see everyone that comes in through the front door. I didn't want to speak back to him at first because he was so super friendly. The flight response in me was similar to seeing a spider or a serial killer who is chasing after me with a knife. I was startled because it was so surprising. How could this guy be so happy to see a stranger while working at a gas station? What made him so happy, and why am I miserable at work and he's happy to see me walking through the front door? He looks like a straggly old man, but has a light in his eyes that reminds me of devout meditators and people who stare intently at their lovers. He is the definition of happy, and he found a way to portray happy while selling people gum and gas. His enthusiasm made any woe-is-me problem seem like nothing to worry about. Mr. Happy comes to work and makes the decision to make everyone's day better by changing the way they feel about entering into a corner gas station. His philosophy consists of being in the present, where worries about the past or future don't and can't exist. What he subtly teaches is that every now moment is an opportunity to be happy, and he is so full of happiness that he can't help but share it with others. Reassuringly, He is no different than you or me. I realize that I have made the choice throughout the years of conscious and unconscious thought patterns to focus on the negative. But just like any other habit, I can make it or break it when I'm ready. Mr. Happy made a habit of enjoying his life, and that's the best habit to have. All patterns are connections between neurons, and those neurons get stronger as you do the same things over and over. If you make a choice to be happy for one second and repeat that as much as you can, you have started to construct a habit framework. During that time, your neurons fire differently and you begin to construct your new pattern. If you think of it like a recipe, this process is full of ingredients, which makes the final product, but instead of eggs and butter, you're mixing neurochemicals. As you develop new patterns, You are unknowingly creating the joy of cooking you book and you fill it with recipes for happiness or sadness, but all of them are your choice. What Mr. Happy tapped on is being a conscious master chef who openly shares his recipes with you. When you meet someone like him, it's like you are cooking together and he adds into your brain bowl endocannabinoids, which is the chemical that makes you feel bliss. As you keep going, you add in dopamine, which fills you with the thought of being rewarded. Then the recipe calls for a teaspoon of oxytocin, which produces the feeling of bonding like you and your cooking partner are besties. And lastly, you both top it off with endorphin, which kills the pain. It is hard to be unhappy when you are around Mr. Happy, but without you realizing it, you handed him your recipe book and asked him to write in the Mr. Happy ingredient list. When you experience a blissful moment, you are endowing the philosophy of Mr. Happy. You are practicing your recipe skills by making the same dish and hopefully a happy one over and over again, which not only strengthens your skills, but makes you a better you chef. This process is long and frustrating and it can really suck. Especially when there is so much shit going on in your life that it occupies your thoughts like the don't think of a white elephant phrase, but just like if you were making brownies, you will never get to enjoy them if you eat all of the raw mix. You and I can be mister Happy, and I don't see why anyone can't be mister Happy either. As long as the pattern is started, you build something that can last. Keep the train going. And if you fall off, get back on, even if it is several cars behind, because unlike the railroad, there isn't an end in the train car links. It just keeps moving. My husband and I practice lat coupling, not intentionally. I accidentally found out about lat coupling from Wikipedia and didn't realize that it's a movement. I only knew it was something that I have been doing for years. Lat coupling stands for living apart together and is a growing movement amongst a lot of couples, especially millennials, because women are more and more financially independent and creating options and outlets for themselves, which they feel are status symbols or carved I made it niches. A lot of men like it too, because they get a place to be themselves without having to share it with a partner unless they want to for dinner or a sleepover. My husband and I tried living together three times, and each time it didn't work out. We were still together, but just not in the same house. The last time we had a realization that the both of us are much better living separately than together. There wasn't a fight, there wasn't anything wrong with the way that we cooked or cleaned. It was just a moment where we realized that we each need our own space to be happy. So many years ago, I moved in with him for the third time to save up money before I moved into my tiny house so I wouldn't have to pay for an extra couple of months of rent in my shitty apartment. I was at the stove cooking, and he came over to see what I was cooking. I don't remember what we talked about in that short moment, but I said, Don't take this the wrong way, but I can't stand living with you. It has nothing to do with you. It's just that you're there, and I'm here, and I don't have my own space to go to. He gave me a big hug and said I completely understand. It was awesome. I felt so relieved that he felt the same way. We both have the same cleaning habits, cooking habits, and same preferences in shows and music, but it's just that he's always there, and I don't have a place to go to to be by myself. We are both introverts and need our own space in order to feel happier and better about ourselves, We recharge by being away from people, including our own selves. As we started practicing not living together, we looked at other couples who live together and realized that a lot of their problems they have are because they are always with each other the whole time. They fight and they say stupid shit, but they don't have an outlet to go to to get away from each other and think to themselves about how to make the situation better. My husband and I live in separate houses, in different towns, and so many people think this is weird, and there are problems in our marriage, or we don't love each other. But the time that we spend away from each other, we spend doing things that we love, and when we do get to see each other, it is a hundred times better. We have been together for a long time, Nine years, and we have never had a fight. Do you think our grandparents had the right idea about sleeping in separate beds? How much do you think your partner would freak out if you suggested that you sleep in separate beds or you live in different houses? Would they take that as a prelude to divorce? Are you able to have an honest conversation with them about having your space and them having theirs and setting something up where that happens more than a girl's night out, or a nightly retirement to a man cave? Why not? Do you have to follow the living together, sharing finances, sleeping in the same bed, always seeing each other's standard norm of relationships? A relationship is part of a trio. There is you, there is the other person, and then there is the relationship. Think about it. VARC stands for Visual, Audible, Read-Write, Kinesthetic, and was developed by two people named Fleming and Mills. The acronym describes how people learn, and most people are a combination of two or more of these learning styles, depending on the situation. You may be a great audible learner at a lecture but very visual and kinesthetic if you have to fix your car or your computer. If you're visual, that means you need to see it to remember it. If you're audible, that means you need to hear it to remember it. If you are read-write, then you have to write it down in order to remember it. And if you are kinesthetic, then you have to do it to remember it. This isn't a learning gold standard. It's just a way to help people understand how they retain information. The problem with this is no one is asked how they learn best, and some people don't even know. I am a visual kinesthetic learner, and I need to watch and get my hands on something in order for me to remember it and comfortably know how to repeat it. My old friend trained me in a position at work to his standards without ever asking me how I learn. His expectations were that I watch him once and remember how to do it weeks later, and if I hesitated, then I was not performing to his standards. Maybe passive-aggressively, I helped to develop a VARC course based on the years of criticism he gave me for not performing to his expectations. The class went over really well and I am in a new area where I get to get my hands on things and I don't have negative people, like my old friend, who won't let anyone work on anything where they could end up being better than him. Unfortunately, he's still in his ego mindset. How often do you ask someone, how do you learn? Were you ever asked that at a job when you were training? If you were asked, would you have known the answer, and if you did, do you think your trainer could have adjusted their training to meet your needs? Training is not for the trainer. A trainer should not say, you have to do things my way or you won't learn. Remember hearing, you need to write this down, and it was an expectation that you had from the teacher but there was always that one kid who never did that and was always able to retain the information? Here's where it gets beyond work and the classroom. Your upbringing and the influences you have on the people in your life are retained by them based off of how they learn. Someone might remember what you said, or someone might remember what you did and you might remember what someone looked like or what they did to you. VARC is a powerful model that lets us understand our language in how we may help or hinder others. Have you ever asked your child how do they learn best? Maybe the differences in memory is because someone remembers what you looked like when you did that stupid thing you can't get out of your head, and yet you remember what you and everyone else did. Earlier this year, I took up running as a form of exercise post-laser lipo treatment. The results from laser lipo are best seen if you work out 24 hours after the treatment. One night, I was running and didn't pay attention to the crosswalk lights before I ran across the crosswalk. I was in the zone, and being a lifetime non-runner, I was just going and feeling good that I could. After I crossed the road, two cars got into an accident at the intersection I crossed at, and I thought it might have been my fault. I called the police and told them there was an accident at the intersection. Then I called my husband because I was riddled with anxiety. He said, get out of your own head. His message was meant as a loving, in-your-face wake-up message intended to let me know that my anxiety is nothing but fear-based and contains no basis or evidence for needing to be in my body. However, it was the last thing I wanted to hear. I closed the ear doors to let my mind find a comfortable corner within my insecurity and turned the other way and ran back home. I had wine. I had a lot of wine. Because fuck my progress, I just didn't want to feel. The weird thing is, this was one of the most beautiful and eye-opening moments of my life. Because that whole situation made me realize that I need to come up with a plan to get rid of this anxiety. I've had it for too long, and another year or 33 would not make any improvements that I've already made any better. So I started Goal Zero, which is a year-long timeline I put on myself to do everything I can to rid myself of this anxiety. I went back to therapy. I continued running. I meditated every day. I cut down on the caffeine. I practiced nightly gratitude and morning reflection and intentions. I had radical honesty with myself and became involved with Stoicism, Taoism, and Buddhist philosophy. I put an index card on the wall that says, Goal Zero. You can do this. December is the goal. Find and collect your maintenance tools. I'm writing this in October, and I can say that I have gotten rid of about 90% of my anxiety. Basically, I was doing everything I didn't want to do because I would have preferred to just stay at home and drink wine until work started the next week, and I could just drown my stupid thoughts in it until I buried the incident under a it-doesn't-matter shield. The thing is, I made it matter. And I made it matter because I wanted it to change my brain, since the brain is the source of your thoughts, happiness, and decisions to be depressed and have wine. If you were told that you could change your brain to be happier, would you? Since the neurons in our brain store information like little stores, each selling their own brand of feeling. Then, connecting these stores via road, or disconnecting them by destroying the road, prevents and establishes communication. Each store will give you a free sample of the feeling that it's selling. You may pass by the sad neuron store and get a brief sad feeling like the time you remembered a sad event, or pass by the happy store and get a free sample of a happy feeling. If you live near one of these stores, aren't you most likely to visit what is close by because you run a busy schedule? Move next to the stores that you want to shop from. You don't have to know the locations or the merchandise in the store, and you probably won't because knowing what each neuron does should be left for the people who get paid to know that stuff for brain surgery but you can do the things which are most likely helpful in relocating you to a better store. For me, I put a whole bunch of eggs into the Goal Zero basket and threw them at the wall to see what stuck. The Goal Zero is not actually a Goal Zero like Absolute Zero, which is only measured in Kelvins, but it is a close enough zero that I can be happy about making the journey on. What have you tried in your basket? What's in your Goal Zero? No one is going to be more proud of you than you. The people in your life will be happy for you, but you contain your optimal level of excitement based upon what you think you deserve. You can shrug off something you want to dismiss either narcissistically or stoically or celebrate passionately and throw an inner party for your yay-you-did-it self. I had a friend come over to my place many years ago and said, Oh, look, you have an I love me wall. I didn't know what that was, but he was referring to my certificates, my degree, and my NAMS I got in the Navy and in college that I hung up on my wall. I wanted to take it down after he said that because it wasn't a display of affection anymore. It was now a loathing, self-indulgent wall filled with who I am but nothing more than those papers. So I did take it down. I filed the papers and thought about my ego. The ego in the non-crazy, in-depth psychology sense is this alter you that lives inside you which tells you that you are important and need to be heard and displayed. It will be the same son of a bitch that will shout out a crowd if you disagree with what they are saying and the same little prick that will get hurt if it hears something it doesn't like. The thing is, the ego can only feel what we have programmed it to feel with the stimuli it recognizes throughout our lives. The ego has an emotional response to a situation, but we control the level of emotional intelligence that ego has. Let's say we see a stimulus, which is an article online. We then read it and assign emotions to it based on how we interpret it. Those emotions create feelings, which then create our reactions. I can read an article about a war and feel sad, which will make me cry, or I can read the article and not feel anything, which isn't heartless, it's just a choice I made. We practice our feelings to situations all the time. We practice love to seeing our kids and anger when we see mistreatment but we don't practice getting rid of the feelings we don't want to have anymore. Most of us have learned through classical conditioning that A plus B equals C, like the sound of an ice cream truck means there is ice cream, and therefore we will get ice cream. Classical conditioning, like the Pavlov's dog experiment, in which Pavlov conditioned dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell which signal food, is how we were trained through emotional and physical stimuli and reactions to behave in a variety of situations. In classical conditioning, the behavior can be extinguished through extinction, which means getting rid of the bell altogether. Do you have a bell you respond to? Can you tick down your I love me wall or the ego behind the pictures behind the refrigerator magnets? This episode is based off an assignment which I wrote for college and is very science-oriented. Feel free to stop and pause if you need to catch up. The mole was invented in order to help use mass to count molecules, atoms, and ions, which are difficult to measure because they are incredibly small. It is a common term used in chemistry, and any time measurement of atoms are involved, the mole will also be involved. The exact number is 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd, which is also known as Avogadro's number. It is the number which is used to calculate the molecules which can't be easily lined up and visually counted as if you were lining up and counting marbles. The mole is also a method of translating weight that is in grams and weight that is in mass by expressing it in atomic mass units. The mole can also be expressed as a mole of atomic mass units is the same as a gram. By creating a means in which very small atomic masses can be calculated across the board and used in all areas of the periodic table. The concept of a mole established its place in chemistry as a calculating standard. So a mole of something is a way of calculating very small objects that mean a lot. When someone says that you are making a mountain out of a molehill, they don't really know that they are semi-chemically correct. What is a small atom to someone? is a huge mass to you, and the relevancy doesn't come from how many atoms are in each other's court that you can line up, but by the evidence that backs up the creation of such a molehill. Avogadro's number is used in the periodic table by first finding the mass of an element. Neon, for instance, has a mass of 20.18 according to the periodic table. If we wanted to find one mole of neon 20.18, then we need to remember that a mole transcribes element weight into grams. So one mole of neon at 20.18 will equal 20.18 grams of neon. Another way of thinking about the mole is the mole is a bridge between two roads which are of equal height but are not connected. Road A, which we can call grams, needs to be connected to road B, which we will call atomic mass units, using a bridge, called the mole, which you cross by utilizing a vehicle, which we'll call Avogadro's number. The bridge, also known as the mole, connects the road, but is not utilized until the vehicle, Avogadro's number, is invented in order to calculate the way that Road A and Road B can unite. How many times have you tried to connect your roads with an uneven bridge and a broken down car? Can you look at the element, aka a situation, that you are trying to get a sense of the weight for and break that mountain down into a molehill of smaller, more manageable situations or factors? You live in your head full time. Make sure that you fill your head house with nice things, and only put in energy into learning from every moment, good or bad, so your headspace volume can be calculated in moles, not a mountain. I recently got rid of my fitted sheet. I hate fitted sheets. They are so hard to get onto my mattress in my loft, but I felt that it was the appropriate thing to do, get a fitted sheet. I had a sheet which fit over my mattress that I used, but I got rid of that one too because it was difficult to get on with the limited headroom in my loft. I called up my husband and asked if he didn't mind if I got rid of the fitted sheet. He didn't mind at all and wondered why I was flustered about the sheet. A few years ago, I was living with a family who was not my biological family while I lived in my tiny house. I loved them like they were my biological family that I never had and always wanted to do what I could to show them how much I appreciated them. I was helping the mom fold some clothes, and I grabbed a fitted sheet to fold. I asked her, how do I fold a fitted sheet? Her reaction was Anger shock. What do you mean you don't know how to fold a fitted sheet? Didn't your mother teach you how to fold it? Come on, you're an adult. This is ridiculous. I had a few initial reactions to this scenario. I wanted to cry because she knew my mother was not an ideal parent, and teaching me how to fold a fitted sheet was the last thing my narcissist mother was concerned with me doing. I wanted to defensively say, Sorry, princess. Do you want me to test the mattress to see if there's a pee under the bed? I was going through a range of emotions, but the most prominent one was shame and embarrassment. I'm an adult woman, and I don't know how to fold a fitted sheet. Of course, looking back on this now, I see how ridiculous her reaction was, and her reaction probably came from a place of hurt in her past but I didn't deserve a shame bullet for not knowing something that she determined was a fundamental skill. It was hard to ask her questions, advice, or for help after this, because I didn't know if my curiosity and lack of understanding of a subject would be met with ridicule from her moral high ground. I didn't get a fitted sheet from that point until recently, and when I tried to get it on the bed, I heard that woman's voice ridiculing me for not knowing how to fold a fitted sheet. That family ghosted me, and it's been a long time since I heard from them. I never truly felt like I fit into their dynamic, and it was heartbreaking when I realized how easy it was for them to up and leave me out of their life, because they were what I considered my family. My biological family is not in the picture and I spent my entire childhood surviving narcissistic abuse from every level from both parents, which has left me with several issues that I continue to deal with to this day. I was never able to fit my sheet in the family I was born in. I always felt like the black sheep, and I am the only one who escaped the narcissistic abuse which has earned me the title of selfish bitch and family enemy who is the cause of all hurt. I couldn't fit my sheet in all the years of school, where each group I wanted to be a part of ended up never truly accepting me or understanding my nervous tics or emotional state when I lost everything at 15. I never fit my sheet with my first husband, who I knew wasn't right for me, but did everything I could to find a ray of happiness in his gloomy existence. I never fit my sheet in the Navy where I tried to stand up for the right things, but ended up being called a narc, a snitch, and left my division because they were so adamant about clowning around and not doing their jobs. My sheet has never fully fit on a bed, and the realization of that brings a strong launch of fierce independence and grateful beginnings. I am not alone in this fitted sheet world, And there are so many other people out there whose sheet doesn't fit on the bed of any group. But the thing I wonder is, how necessary is this sheet in the first place? I got rid of mine and it made my life easier. Why do we have to keep a sheet that won't fit anywhere and only causes us trouble? There is an innate sense of belonging that humans feel that they need because of primal instincts to not be separated from the group, or else you can't enjoy the hunt or the group's supplies. I'm in the position to declare that you can hunt and survive on your own, and the fitted sheet doesn't need to fit on anything. In fact, it can be donated or made into a rough sack to carry the things that make you happy. I am not happy 100% of the time, and I don't think anyone really is. But I got rid of my sheet, and I know that I may never fully fit into the mold of any group. But I make my bed the way I want to, and there's no one left who can ridicule it. I took my husband out to dinner a while back, and I ordered my usual crab bucket with the sauce on the side so I can savagely dip that crab into the butter without getting it onto the shell. I also ordered a lobster bucket, because I always wanted to try theirs, and being from New England, lobster has a special place in my appetite. I didn't do anything out of the ordinary at the restaurant, and made a big mess as always. I am a messy person. I clean, and I believe in keeping a clean house, but put me in front of a bucket of crab, and i go to town like a through-hiker on a resupply. I had the butter too close to the edge of the bar, and it spilled all over my pants. I then spilled the lobster juice from the lobster bag all over my pants. It got on the floor, my husband, and everywhere, to the point where the stranger sitting next to me laughed. And I told her, this is actually a win of a day for me. I didn't think that the butter would come out of my pants after washing them. And it didn't. I ruined one of my only two pairs of pants. And I was attached to those pants because they were perfect. They held up through hiking, working outdoors, working at my job, and they were the perfect fit. They never frayed, tore, nothing. And I love them. I felt a sadness of stupid when I spilled the butter, but a weird sense of relief which I knew came from the practice of non attachment. If I was truly attached to those pants, there would have been a sense of grief, anger, and maybe even crying over pants. There is a law called the law of impermanence, which states a very stoic and in your face truth about the world. Nothing lasts forever. You have heard it over and over, but you, like me, have clung to objects because they give us a feeling and the loss of them is a loss to us which is also a change of feeling. If you lose your car keys, you will look for them and be relieved when you find them and move on with your day. If you lose your dog, you will have lost a part of your life that has given you a feeling and now this feeling has changed. The keys will get lost. Your pasta will be eaten. Your house will need repair. Your favorite dress will somehow get damaged. Your shoes will get a hole in the bottom. Your gas tank will empty. Your body will die. Your dog will too. This is gloomy, I I get it. And I will certainly express sadness and loss when some of the most important things in my life have passed on to their next stage but just like the food you ate during your last meal, everything has an end and a next stage. We are conditioned to attachment since birth. The attachment theory was brought to the light in the 1950s by John Bowlby and has been studied extensively for the effects of how we relate to our early caregivers and to things throughout our life. We have to have attachment in our early lives because we need to bond with our mothers in the womb. When we are born, we depend on a level of attachment from our caregivers so they feel the need to take care of us because we are unable to do so. The level of attachment we feel towards our caregivers from the level of affection and nourishment we receive and perceive from a combination of nature and nurture creates a balance or imbalance of oxytocin and cortisol in our brains which tells our bodies and minds that we are either being taken care of or there is something wrong. When we get older and get off our breastfeeding and diapers, we are still given things from the people who gave us life, so there is a level of attachment to those things. The things can be a present on our first birthday or a toy on our fifth Christmas, but the gift of a thing is similar to the gift of a thing of necessity such as milk and holding, when we are infants. We don't remember how we became attached or unattached when we were growing up, but as financially independent people in our later years, we equate the thing that we get to self-love and nourishment. The practice of detachment from things doesn't detach us from the past, but instead it gives us a freedom to remove ourselves from the feeling of need towards something that doesn't last forever just like our mothers knew of us being babies and growing up. Of course not everyone has the same level of attachment to something. Children who have had levels of neglect growing up have different neurocircuitry in their amygdala, and the levels of stress that increase cortisol creates inflammation and stress-related diseases, which put children at a great disadvantage and who perceive life and events differently. I'm not just speaking from a scientific response. I am speaking from a relatable person position. As a grown up who was a child of a bad environment with levels of abuse which caused several social, physical, emotional, and mental ailments, creating a basis for an autoimmune disease, high levels of stress, and a lifelong problem of healing from narcissistic abuse syndrome. As a result of this, I have had different levels of attachment throughout my life. But right now, I choose to be detached from what I know has an end, but have an attachment to what has a benefit. Here's an example. I love self-help and transformation. Obviously, or else I wouldn't have made this podcast. I love learning from stoicism, and I am attached to the benefits I have found from it but I am detached from holding on to it because I know my beliefs can change. As the late Dr. Wayne Dyer once hilariously said to make a point about beliefs, if I say something on Monday, you can be absolutely sure that I will believe it on Wednesday, regardless of what happens on Tuesday. Have you ever caught yourself making a similar statement to your kids or to your own belief system? So what is the message in all of this? Be detached from what you know will end, but this doesn't mean you can't enjoy the benefits of what it brings to you now. I ordered a new pair of pants, and I'm going back to that restaurant to eat a new crab bucket. If I spill butter on them, I will have at least enjoyed wearing them and eating the crab. There is a song which goes, I've got no more fucks to give, I've got no more fucks to give. It's freaking catchy, and it's the anthem of not giving a fuck. I wish I knew this song when I was on the ship in the Navy. There is a saying that the smartest person on the ship is the shitbag, and it's true. You can work hard and get qualified, but that means there will be more expected of you. And if you fuck up, the consequences are worse for you. You can get your eSWAS pin and look super stellar in your uniform and be sailor of the quarter, but someone is going to hate you and think that you got there unethically. The shipbag who is unqualified, not squared away, and an overall piece of shit walks around not giving a fuck while carrying low expectations for themselves. And as long as they don't do anything to really get them in trouble, they will leave the military with an honorable discharge. Now, your morals may be like mine, and we may say, No, I can't do that. I need to work hard. It's part of my work ethic. But you probably also wished you could slack off and not have to worry about as much shit in your life. Let's use the janitor from the TV show Scrubs as an example. If you have never seen the show, pause this podcast and watch some clips of the janitor from Scrubs. The janitor gave no fucks and does the bare minimum or even less every episode while torturing JD. He pranks everyone and created alter egos to further fuck with the hospital staff. He made a knife wrench, an airband, fake stories about his life like how his wife only has a pointer finger on one hand and thumb pinky on the other. But he came to work every day, made realistic sense of the world and verbally expressed the hidden bullshit in conversations that everyone is too politely afraid to say out loud for fear of retribution, said whatever he wanted, pranked whoever he wanted, and was one of the most lovable characters on the show. The janitor gave no fucks and lived the least stressed life out of all the characters on the show. He made a conscious decision to not care about a lot of things that we all stress over, but he came to work every day in uniform and showed up where he needed to be. That was a TV show, but how distant is it from our own lives to see if we can't be more janitor-like? I don't want you to get fired, but can you try and experiment on yourself to not care about the fuckface two cubicles away from you who is not doing their job according to your standards? Or do you need to try to balance the energy of the situation by trying to make them do their job according to the almighty you? Is this fuckhead the janitor already? Do you think they go home with the same level of stress as you do? Are you jealous? Dr. Docker Keltner is a psychologist who argues that the way we perceive power and how it affects each individual's character helps to shape the dynamics of the structure of one's community. He stated, Life is made up of patterns. Patterns of eating, thirst, sleep, and fight-or-flight, and are crucial to our individual survival. Patterns of courtship, sex, attachment, conflict, play, creativity, family life, and collaboration are crucial to our collective survival. Wisdom is our ability to perceive these patterns and to shape them into coherent chapters within the longer narrative of our lives. Our perception of the patterns of power and the balance of it within all aspects of our lives help to determine the level of fucks we give to a situation. Your boss has a lot of power, so therefore, more fucks. The customer service associate at the gas station is serving you, so therefore, less fucks, but more power on your part. Both of these people have levels and balances of power within their lives, and they give them different levels of fucks than you do. Yes, you should give a fuck about your job and show up in your uniform just like the janitor and make yourself known, but can you lose the amount of fucks you give to the outcome of a situation that you don't control? Can the fucks you give instead be given towards dancing with that mop and broom instead of the guy in the cubicle behind you. Why care about them? Care about the world, but care about how many fucks you give, because if you give them all away, you'll have no more fucks to give. Great, now it's in my head again. Plants and animals live on the same earth and respond very similarly to the outside environment. Humans breathe in the oxygen from the air, take off a layer when it gets warm, and go to bed when the sun goes down. Plants also respond to these changes, but they take in carbon dioxide, turn towards the sun to produce more fuel, and take a rest during the night. Whether a living object is a plant or an animal, There is a requirement for adaptation in their environment, which can involve stimulus, respiration, energy, and a combination of hormones. The mesquite tree has adapted to living in the desert climate through the same means. It uses a very long taproot to find water underground, which is their essential lifeline for survival in the desert. Most desert plants have to store water. But the mesquite tree can collect moisture from several feet underground, which makes for a difficult survival situation for any surrounding plant. The taproot can reach as far as 200 feet underground, and any attached roots can help regenerate a new tree if the tree above ground is cut down or damaged. When the taproot locates water, the taproot and the surrounding roots help to draw the water in through tiny root hairs that are attached. The water creates a pressure effect on the roots, which helps it to travel upwards and into the xylem columns of the trunk. As the height of the tree increases, the xylem is subjected to an increase in negative atmospheric pressure. So the xylem can transport water through the tree similar to a vacuum. The xylem itself is dead, and are not actively involved in the process of transporting water except being the vessel in which water moves throughout the tree. The movement of water is completed through the process of transpiration in the leaves, and the suction of water in the roots, which in a dry soil environment, roots will readily suck up any moisture to survive. How this tree has learned to adapt over the years is an incredible act of nature, but so are we, and we are generally bad at adapting to new environments. The concept of setting up roots and creating a foundation sounds structurally sound, but if your environment changes, do you shut down your water supply and dry up, or utilize your tap roots? I don't think a lot of people know that they have a taproot. I think they believe their surface root system is just as shaky as plucking out a weed. You find your taproot when you have to stand up for the right thing, or when you hit rock bottom and have to pull yourself out of the future teaching hole you put yourself in. Do you put your taproot into play when you have a meeting with your boss or when you're in traffic on the highway? You have a taproot. Tap into it. This is an excerpt from a real conversation with a friend. We will call him Dave. I moved out here for her. I had a good job. I didn't have to come in until 9 and I took lunch at 11. I went home, came back in at 1, and left around 3. I was a supervisor and worked my way up from the beginning, which was an operator. I had that job for over 20 years, and you know what I did? I answered phone calls and directed people to the people they needed to talk to. We had a big house. I knew the area. I didn't like it, but I was comfortable. I had friends and stability. It wasn't supposed to be like this. We weren't supposed to separate. And you know what? I tried. I really tried. I offered marriage counseling and I tried just shutting up and letting her speak. But the second I opened my mouth, she starts with, There you go again, always blaming me before I could get a word out. You know what? She said she's going out drinking with her friends the other day, and I said, Okay, have a good time. When I told her I wanted to drive around and explore the area because I'm new, you know what she said? She said, You're going to cheat on me. You're going to go to the strip club and get with other girls. I was like, Where are you getting this from? I just wanted to explore the area. Now she's locked me out of the apartment. I had to call the police just to get my stuff back, and now I'm living in a hotel, and I'm going to go broke if I don't find something else. I'm going apartment shopping soon. I can't do this anymore. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Why wasn't it supposed to be like this? Because we were supposed to stay together. And you know what? I'm in my 50s, and this is my second marriage, and I'm tired of being married. I got kids. I got grandkids and I just want to go home and not be accused of something that I didn't do. Dave, if you stayed in this relationship, then that's how it was supposed to be? With you miserable with her? No, I just didn't expect this, you know? I understand, but if everything happens for a reason, then you are always where you need to be. Could you have stayed with her any longer with what she was doing to you? No, I hated it. I don't want to rebuild again. I'm old. I'm tired. Dave, what happens to old buildings when they fall down? They build a new one. Oh, I get it. There is evidence to suggest that meaning is correlated to positive emotions which someone would equate to having a meaningful life. Like those YouTubers who travel constantly and tell you to bullet journal and find your purpose or find your meaning because these temporary moments of acceleration will make your life meaningful. The problem with this assumption is that happiness isn't lasting, it's momentary and the craving to have a meaningful life is tied in with the fear of being on your deathbed and not having one. There is a perspective called meaning-making, which uses the word meaning to define how we handle stressful situations. Both views, the positive emotion perspective and the meaning-making perspective, parallel the same road to conclusion, the outcome of your experience. This outcome, either happy or meaningful, is based on your perspective of how things turned out. Dave wanted to be happy, but his divorce from his wife will turn out to be a meaning-making shift for him if down the road he realizes he is better because of the situation. Most people have a positive emotion or a meaning-making outlook, and this plays a huge factor on the meaning of life. Neither is better than the other, and both leave the subject matter with a smile on their face and with a that-was-worth-it feeling. At the end when we are on our deathbed, will it be the vacations, travel, experiences, and laughter, or the overcoming, the recovery, the moving past and moving forward that we went through that will finally define what meaning means to us? think about it come on to go on, to I hated hearing this when we marched our rdcs through and clever i'm a shitbag type sayings into the cadences which we had to repeat Marching down roads proclaiming you're a shitbag was fucked up then, but funny now. I was in birthing, and someone got in trouble for something stupid, so we all had to do jumping jacks, eight counts, and push-ups in our navy dress blues. You know, the ones that make any guy look like a military stud muffin, and any female look like a flight attendant? We did that for 45 minutes. Another jerk got in trouble for something, and we all had to hold a pen out at arm's length between two fingers while reciting the Blue Jacket's paragraph on discipline. For an hour and a half. I got my wisdom teeth removed in this boot camp, and some dumbass got in trouble for something and we all had to work out for 45 minutes again. This time, I was bleeding all over myself from my wisdom teeth removal while my RDCs watched. They watched the blood drip down my white shirt and all over the floor. They didn't care. But they care enough that if I passed out, then I would go to the doctor and then probably get yelled at. See, getting yelled at is a caring thing in the military. At least that's what I was indoctrinated to believe. Boot camp will tear you down, and that's exactly what it's supposed to do. You go in as you, but you are standing in a silent line with everyone else until you are led into a weird, dark room where you get naked and change with the other yous into messed up newbie gear. And then you are led, marched, yelled at, and controlled, and verbally beaten and emotionally beaten, and marched into something that gives up and just listens. It's sometimes easier to do what you're told, right? If you have no choice and you can't fight back, you give up. That's what boot camp wants you to do. You can't. Give up mid-boot camp. You're going to get back on that track and run your 45-minute sustained mile when you're hurting so bad you would rather cut your arm off. You're going to march and say cadences which you don't believe in for weeks. You're going to eat bad food, shower with strangers, wake up several times a night to stand a door watch, and start to believe that you are a piece of shit and you're going to do all of this until you graduate. The wanting to give up is an animalistic instinct that we have in order to conserve energy for vital processes. If we have a goal, we follow through, until we don't, because we give up if we don't see our efforts leading towards our outcome. Researchers used zebrafish to manipulate their environment to make them believe that their goal of swimming was unachievable by putting them in a VR-type world where they believed that they were swimming backwards and therefore never getting anywhere. I hate animal testing, and I'm cringing with you, but just bear with me. The researchers used a virtual reality behavioral assembly to monitor paralyzed fish's motor output using electrophysiology and found that when a fish believes it is swimming normal, its neutral output shows normal activity. However, if the fish believes it is not swimming, it will put forth a ton of effort and then give up. The giving up is what the researchers called futility-induced passivity. The fishes' brain shows they show that they went active, then passive, then active, just like they kept trying and then gave up. The non-neuronal cells called glia in the central nervous system, which are little star-shaped cells that were once thought of as not important, but actually help to control the neurotransmitters and synapses in the brain. The astrocytes, a type of glia in these fish, activate right before the fish was about to give up. So right before the fish said, fuck it, I'm not swimming, their little glia spiked in activation, then futility-induced passivity kicked in. In boot camp, you can't run away. Actually, you can, but you're going to get into a ton of trouble for it. You generally choose to go to boot camp. And once you're in, you pretty much want out. You see the final outcome and know that it's worth it. But any resistance you have is met with hostility and that breaking down will eventually get you to say, fuck it, I'm not swimming. And eventually, switch you into fertility-induced passivity mode. Think of if all the fish of a colony thought for themselves and each decided what was the best way to get away from a shark. You would have fishes everywhere, and some would be eaten and some would not. The smart ones would survive, and they stay with their tactics because they know that they can avoid the shark. This is what survival of the fittest is, and in boot camp, you are taught that you are not an individual fishy. You are part of a colony, and the whole thing has to swim this way in order to get away from the shark, or else you're all going to die. It's about being part of the collective, and knowing that since everyone thinks and does things the same, there is strength in numbers and you are less likely to give up. You want to. Grateful. Damn cadence. Everyone is a teacher. Pima Chodron has a beautiful saying, which she uses and teaches to help with anger, and it's called, Just Like Me. Here is what you do. You're in traffic and the lady in front of you is honking her horn and trying to aggressively weave into another lane because she's in a hurry. You're angry and in a rush too, just like me. Your friend slams the refrigerator door shut and is aggravated over the phone with the customer service representative who can't understand her language. You have been there before, just like me. You are at the sandwich counter, and you see a guy in front of you holding up the line because he doesn't know what he wants. You have been indecisive before, just like me. You see a mom carrying her screaming baby down the supermarket aisle while she is pushing a cart of sugary cereals. Your parents did what they could for you too when you were a screaming baby, just like me. You go to the doctor and a sick man in front of you complains about the cost of his visit that insurance won't cover. You've been tight on money before too, just like me. You go to the DMV to get your car registered and the lady at the counter is aggravated that she doesn't have all of the paperwork. You have been forgetful before too, just like me. You see a news story where a family lost their house from a tornado and everyone is crying that there is nothing left. You have lost something meaningful to you too, just like me. Your kid comes home from school and said that he was picked on by a bigger guy and is mad and wants to punch him in the face. You have been made fun of before too and have felt small and insignificant, just like me. Your partner has a bad couple of weeks at work and has not paid as much attention to you as you want. You have also had a bad streak in life and needed to pull away to not hurt anyone so you can return more loving, just like me. Your neighbor is screaming at their kids that they need to get into the car or they will be late for the party. You have been late before too, just like me. You sit in self-guilt because you believe that you are not worth it, that you are stupid, that what you did is unforgivable, and people don't respect you. Everyone has made bad decisions, but as long as we learn from them, they are good, and you can move on, just like me. I say... Everything happens for a reason. A lot. I believe it, but after having a good conversation with a friend, I understand that this is a limited belief, only applicable post-event. You can't tell a mother holding a dying child that everything happens for a reason. You can't tell a kid that lost their favorite comfort toy that everything happens for a reason. You can't tell someone who is in the process of being robbed or on-the-floor shot that everything happens for a reason. You would be an asshole. There are moments which put us in the present moment like those, and the statement isn't, This is happening for a reason. The statement is, Why in the hell is this happening? The everything happens for a reason statement is to give you comfort and a sense of purpose for the event after the event has happened. Looking back on everything in my life, everything is connected and has led me to where I am now, but only after I made choices along each of the roads branching off those connections. Post-event acceptance means you understand what happened and why. But the connections you made along your road doesn't provide the evidence to prove that everything happens for a reason. There is no proof that the toy was lost because something said it has to be or there is a divine reason behind it. Did the universe really want you to get shot? This implies there is no such thing as chance or free will. Charles Sanders Peirce believed that chance is an objective property owned by the universe and called his theory "taishism," which is Greek for chance. And quantum theory, which supports unpredictability, gives backing to taishism, with the possibility of chance. But are the events in our lives done by pre-planned construction, accident, or chance? Is the planning of a baby pre-planned and the pregnancy accident or chance? And how many factors do you contribute to this answer? Hegel, a German philosopher, stated that real is rational, but doesn't define real. Real can be in your head or factually accurate, but then accurate to who? History or your enemy? Does real just imply life? An explanation for chance in order to satisfy the past event may be the reason for everything. A story I told myself. You're more boring than you think. The stories you tell are not as exciting as you would like people to take them. The experiences that you had don't inspire people to make themselves better. Your words don't affect their lives to the point where they realize all of their faults and they become better people. Your stories of triumph and overcoming hardships don't make you an expert on your type of PTSD. Your 34 years of being on this earth doesn't qualify you to give life advice to children. The things you get excited about are boring to most other people. Very few people would want to sit in silence, drinking chai, and listen to stoicism, so don't get excited about trying to create a meetup for this. Your activities don't include social gatherings and you don't like people, so let go of your excitement to impress or excite anyone. You're fucking boring. Thank God for this conversation. It sounds so gloomy, and I I get it. But I found peace in knowing that there is no one that I have to impress. There is excitement that I would get about sharing my life with other people, but the disappointment about my expectations that were not being met overpowered the storytelling and made the experience a shameful situation rather than open-hearted. I continuously closed my heart to the thought of opening it, because when I opened it for a second to share a space with someone, to relate with someone, or to comfort someone, it would get shut down with an eye roll or a change of conversation or a backhanded compliment. However, this internal conversation unknowingly let my ears open more to people and let my mouth close more to people. I can be the listener to other people's lives and excitement, and be there for their excitement. I can share a space with them where I recognize their need to create a space which I don't feel like I have to help them reorganize. I can listen to where people are coming from, and although I'm silent, I gain a tremendous amount of insight on why people are the way they are, and I can relate internally. There are stronger connections made within the silent space of being there for someone than when I try to be there for them out loud. A moment of, guess what happened today, gets to put me in the space of active listening, almost like an audible book, except I know the author, and I'm tremendously grateful that they want to read me their real life story. I get to give them love in this way. I get to listen to them which makes me feel better about being a part of their lives. My mouth closes, I stare, and listen. And that space that someone is opening for me, I get to sit and be at peace with by hearing the world's greatest storytellers, which is everyone, because everyone has a story. Sometimes, being stoically real with yourself makes you more loving. N-E-E-D, never experiencing enough dealings. This is what need stands for, at least what I think it stands for. I have a friend at work who told me about his big house. He has a blank wall and said, I need to put something there. He has an empty room and said, I need to rent it out. He has a backyard set up, and said, I need to do something different with it. I listened and nodded and told him I understood, but I didn't understand anything he was saying. I don't think you need to cover a large blank wall or rent an empty room or do something different with your backyard, because to me, need means it's essential to your life's functioning. I need water just like you, but no one, in my opinion, needs to cover a blank wall. I am being particular about this because I have a hard time understanding how loosely the word need is used, just like the word like is used over and over in common conversation. Need means you are sacrificing your time and money for a thing or things which you deem necessary. This can be a good thing. You can use your time and money on your loved ones, and in that case, you are creating memories. Not just sacrificing a need for yourself or them. Need, in the sense of the acronym, is like throwing things down a bottomless pit and expecting it to fill up so you can feel fulfilled. How many times have you purchased something because you forecasted your potential happiness that you will have once you buy it? Does your forecast match your actual happiness level? Did it fill a spot in the void to where you don't have to purchase anything else because you are now fulfilled? Did the object break and now your forecasted happiness turned into unexpected sadness or anger? Because your expectations and goal of reaching a level of excitement for the thing is now unachievable? I hope these questions spark some, yeah, that is silly, thoughts in your mind. We should use the word need to mean things that are essential to our well-being for survival and not for something that we want because we believe it will bring us a level of a feeling. The word want which I acronym, Willingly Allowing Now Theft, should take the place of need when it comes to things that are not necessary. This changes your external as well as your internal dialogue about an object. I need a new carpet brings hassle, a losing-the-race type of feeling. I want a new carpet brings questions. Do I really need it? Can I afford it? Can I still live with the one I have? We should change the way we talk about getting an object, because we don't always look at what is lost in the process, and what we are losing is sometimes more valuable than what we are getting. So accumulation can actually equal loss. I'm not saying everyone should be a minimalist or stop buying for a month, but just take a look at how you use those two words, need and want. Then try to interchange them in your sentences, and see how you feel each time you change the word. You may feel that you need to want less, or maybe you want to need more. See what I did there? This episode is dedicated to my brother, Arjun. A fellow mafia story enthusiast and podcaster, he has been on this podcast journey with me from the beginning, and has shown nothing but love an incomparable friendship with over these years. He is one of the people who I get excited about laughing with, can understand inner struggles with, can share stories, conspiracies, ideas, books, and jokes with, and I always learn something new and valuable. Arjun, brother, you mean a lot to me, and although this episode is about Omerta. I'm not silent on the world knowing you are an amazing person and friend. Please check out Arjun's podcast, Deep Into History, for a historical journey that will transform the way you look at what you thought you knew. Now on with the show. Silence is so weird. It's exactly what we want and what we don't want. Our kids are loud and we tell them to shut up so we can have quiet. But we bury ourselves in anything that will distract us from being silent and hearing what's in our head. It's like we want selective silence silence that will take over the distracting sounds in our area, but not the silence that allows us to think. If the dog acting in its own nature barks, we tell it to shut up. If the blender is loud in the morning, and we don't want to wake the husband, we tell it, stop, shh, stop, as if the blender will hear us. Not that I've done that. But when we have that silence we want, we are uncomfortable and reach for our phone or for music. You want to sit on the porch and enjoy your cup of tea, but you have to have something else there so you can't hear your mind. Can you have selective silence and enjoy your time when you have silence? It seems that most people want the silence they put distractions in front of, which is the silence of the mind. It would be great to meditate with no distractions and be like a Zen monk. With nothing on our mind. But it's so hard. It's hard for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because you don't practice Omerta. Omerta is the mafia code of silence, which prevents members from talking about the mafia outside of the family. It's a blood oath taken seriously with your life. Breaking Omerta means you are a dead man walking. It's an honor code between family members, which states that business can be taken care of within the family, and a spectacle doesn't need to be made out of family business. If business is to be displayed, it is for a reason, a message, like when John Gotti had Paul Castellano and Thomas Bellotti killed outside of Spark Steakhouse in New York City. There have been people who have broken it throughout mafia history, including Sammy Gravano, Joe Valachi, Tomasco Brussetta, but their cooperation with law enforcement left a streak on mafia trust and provided valuable insight into law enforcement. When you think about what you say outside of your own mind or to other people, do you regulate your speech according to the listening party? Of course you do. You don't speak to your coworkers the same way you speak to your dog. Good boy, you did this month's quarterly reports. Who wants a treat? But I bet you have a hard time practicing self-amerta in your head. This involves understanding the language you hear and the processes you have about how you interpret actions and which ones to remain silent about. Self-amerta is not flipping off the jerk who cut you off then slowed down in front of you. Mental-amerta is continuous practice of you do you and letting people make their own karma while you stay in your own lane and choose to do good so your bad business doesn't end up outside of your scope. Daily-amerta is enjoying the moments of silence you are in tune to throughout your day. Silence should be a protected investment, an oath to yourself and to the people around you that practicing silence gives you the space to sort out the crazy in your head so you can come back to the family table with a rational human thought process and pattern of speech rather than an emotional ego-protective reaction which draws out the worst in people. I used to spend a day in silence about once a month, and that was the happiest day of the month each time I think back about when I did it. The best of the best days is when I spent it physically and verbally alone. I could hear so much, and I had to turn around in my head to face my mind and say, I'm here to listen not to react we have a code of amerta today self so nothing will leave this space unless i need advice yes this is hard if you can't get away from people and it's hard because your brain can act like a muscle you haven't used in a while but if you do self amerta for a minute you have done better for yourself in that minute than 10 minutes ago Just keep working it like you are practicing a 5k run. There are good days, bad days, days you don't want to run, sometimes it hurts, and sometimes it's awesome. But if you never practiced your own Imurda, how could you rationally and clearly have emotions and thoughts that come from a place of reason? At the end of the day, you are your longest commitment. Better enjoy yourself while you are here. I don't think caring is specifically a female trait, however, I think nurturing is more feminine and more biological, because we are designed to make humans. From a young age, women and men are taught about emotions, but men are taught to handle them more internally, and women are taught to handle them more externally. I was watching my young nephew a few years ago, and one of his relatives told him to Toughen up when he cried about a toy. He was only about five years old, but I remember this being a moment where he's going to start internalizing the messages of don't cry, be tough, don't show emotions, and man up. I think that caring is a human emotion because there is compassion in everybody, but I think the amount that we show to others is determined by nurture not nature. There are many generations that are brought up on the stereotype of men are tough and women are soft, and I think that this encourages gender stereotypes because we grow up with the expectations of the opposite sex. An example would be it might appear unusual to an older man if a woman doesn't show her emotions and has stonewall expressions because an expectation would be that women are supposed to be soft, full of emotion, and talkative. There has been a movement recently to blend the genders into non-binary categories to be more inclusive. I think that this is going to raise a generation of beings that will not believe the stereotypical traits for men and women. When we have an expectation of how the opposite sex should behave or be, we hold those stereotypes as beliefs, and become shocked or disappointed when our expectations are not filled. I think the question of evaluating an ethical approach has to do with what generation is approached with this question. If this question was asked to younger people under the age of 10, we may not have a direct answer, because ethics classes are generally not taught in classes for this young group. They might indirectly answer the question by saying, If it doesn't hurt me, and it is how they want to be, and it doesn't hurt anyone, then why does it matter? If the question was asked to people several generations ahead of them, they might think more deontological with thoughts such as, It's a man's duty to provide an income and a woman's duty to provide for the household and the family. Although different generations and different people in these generations will respond differently, why can't we look at character as a ship built on experiences which has kept them afloat just like the rest of us? There may not be anywhere safe to go where judgments and interpretations don't exist. But what can be done at a you level is remember everyone carries different tools in their emotional tool bag that has helped them throughout the years. And even though a woman, like me, may be viewed as an emotionally distant hag, I still praise you for all the tools you have gathered, which has brought you here. And the good news is you can always swap out one tool for another and try it out for size. Maybe a new tool will help you to understand the question differently. There are a bunch of red buttons at work. They are optimal. They stare at you with that bright red eye and beg to be pushed. They are surrounded by a clear cover that encompasses the whole button, except a few fingers width in the middle, which almost looks like a halo around a saint. There is a perfect yellow backplate, and when the button is pushed, it makes a wonderful pop sound that will satisfy any ASMR trigger. The button has three white letters, dead smack in the middle, and since there is no way to accidentally push it, the temptation is excruciating to push this forbidden button. Like an 80s bad boy motorcycle riding man who steals you away from your window to bring you by the lake and take your breath away, The dangers of this button tempt the prudest minds, with the possibility of watching a domino chain unfold, as the unknown and guilt wash over your face harder than a loofah. The red buttons are everywhere, you can't escape them, like a tease before the finale, except the final act never takes stage. The red button symbolizes a sudden drastic change in the norm where fight or flight has to become the body's operating system, while a sudden exhilarating rush of rebellion rushes over your conscious. There is no going back once the red button is pushed. Everything changes. The reset time from zero to pre-push is unknown, but it does happen and can take some time to recover from. Everyone has a button similar to this, whether it is a button that once pushed becomes unforgivable or once pushed makes you fall in love. What is fascinating is the temptation to do something that creates the unknown with the satisfaction of performing a simple act. Will it get worse? Will it get better? Sometimes pushing the button is a matter of a coin toss, or it's a signature on a piece of paper in the business world, but both lead to an unknown outcome that we are dying to know. Let's try this. You're in a room with two doors. One door has a bright red button that will only open if you push the button. The other door will open if you turn the doorknob. You are free to open the door without the button as many times as you want, but you can only push the button on the other door once. The door without the button will open to a white room with nothing in it. There is nothing to harm you, but nothing to help you. You can do whatever you want in this room, and you can come out of the room, shut the door, and contemplate pushing the button on the other door as many times as you want. The only red you see is on that button. It's freaking tempting. Pushing it changes the scenery behind the door, and you have no idea what you will be opening the door too but you know there is nothing behind the door without the button do you stay in comfort do you tread through the unknown what kind of a risk taker are you what tempts you what keeps you grounded and stops you from temptation morality ethics religion societal standards and personal integrity could all lead that compass. But a question I think that needs to be asked more often is, why is the button always at eye level and who the hell designed this thing? So what's the moral of the story? I don't think you need to give in to temptations. We know that could lead to disastrous results. But I think you can ask what the intent behind the button is, who has pressed the button before, and what results did they have. Does pushing the button equal satisfaction? And most importantly, why are you at the door with this button? Can't you just walk away? You roll the dice and land on a property. Damn, it's owned by another player. Your luck is really bad this game because you don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card, you always owe taxes, you can't buy a stupid railroad, and you don't have any houses on the shit properties you own. This game sucks, you say, thinking that you had bad luck this game and it's all good because it's just a family game of fun. You roll the dice and land on a property. Score! No one owns it. And you snatch up that property quick because it will give you the two out of three cards you need to own the series. You haven't been to jail and your luck is steady throughout the game. This is fun, you say, thinking that you normally don't have much luck, so this game is rare or or lucky, but either way, fun for the time being. You roll the dice and land on a property. Eh, it's the water company, and it doesn't mean much to you. You are not really into this game because you think it's stupid, and you have other things on your mind. This game is boring, you say, thinking that you have a million other things you could be doing other than playing this unnecessary game. You roll the dice and land on a community chess card. Sweet! It says, Bank error in your favor. Collect $200. You didn't expect this luck, so you smile at the banker as they hand over $200. That was awesome! You say, thinking what a random act of luck that was, and maybe another part of your day will be lucky. You roll the dice and land on an income tax. Ah, you have to pay $200. Eh, ah, no big deal. It was just the luck of the dice, and anyone could have landed on this spot. Damn it! No, well, no big deal, you say, thinking this temporary setback is nothing more than a quick pothole you will drive over. The game finishes. All five players help to put away the game pieces. The first player walks away mad, a little sour at life, but one foot in the door of shit happens and they slowly move the rest of their body in that direction. The second player walks away happy, amazed at their luck and glad they got so far ahead in the game. The third player walks away relieved, exhausted from being a part of a time waster but relieved to get on with more meaningful things. The fourth player walks away from the game, carrying their one win like an Olympic torch. The fifth player walks away from the game happy, and they had a chance to play even though it wasn't their best run. What do you think is the perception of player two? That's a player you want to be, right? Well, Winning two out of the three properties can be a glass half full or a glass somewhat empty point of view. Maybe this was a progressive move towards victory, or this is still a setback because they don't have all three. The only truth to this player's situation is that they have two out of the three cards in a series. That's it. The rest is subjective left up to interpretation by the viewer and the player. The same goes for all of the other players in the game. Winning or losing $200 doesn't determine their future fate or define the player's characteristics or gaming strategy. Rather, it just means that money was lost or gained. Nothing more. We tend to celebrate and sympathize with people's wins and losses. But there is an old Taoist poem which greatly explains how nothing is ever really good or bad. There is a Taoist story of an old farmer who had worked his crops for many years. One day, his horse ran away. Upon hearing the news, his neighbors came to visit. Such bad luck, they say sympathetically. Maybe, the farmer replied. The next morning, the horse returned, bringing with it three other wild horses. How wonderful, the neighbors exclaimed. Maybe, replied the old man. The following day, his son tried to ride one of the untamed horses and was thrown and broke his leg. The neighbors came in to offer their sympathy on his misfortune. Maybe, answered the farmer. The next day, Military officials came by to the village to draft young men into the army. Seeing that the son's leg was broken, they passed him by. The neighbors congratulated the farmer on how well things had turned out. Maybe, said the farmer. Nothing is ever really good or bad. Your roll of the dice isn't the farmer's horse or winning $200. Yes, there are things in this world which are devastatingly horrible and inexplicably wonderful. But our day to day dice roll is just a part of one long game. And at any point, you can land on a good square or a bad square. Last year, I completed a literature review on a hypothesis for island biogeography, and my assignment was to create two hypotheses and two null hypotheses based on four different variables which we could select from a simulated lab. In case you're not familiar with a hypothesis, it is a prediction based on knowledge you have about a topic. A null hypothesis is similar to the opposite of your hypotheses. For instance, I am lactose intolerant and can't eat cow's cheese, but small amounts of goat and sheep's cheese on rare occasions are not too upsetting on my system. I could hypothesize that if I eat cow's cheese, then I will get really sick. My null hypothesis might be Cow's cheese and my digestive upset are independent of each other. I know the answer to this, and now so do you. But in a scientific experiment, you wouldn't know the answer until you performed your experiment to test to see if your hypothesis is true. This is called the scientific method, and it is the gold standard of what is used by scientists to make an experiment and to test each other for validation. If every scientist had a different way of conducting an experiment, then science could not be fluid in replication. And sometimes it isn't, and that's okay, because not being able to replicate means you get to go back to the drawing board to find out what is true and what isn't. We unknowingly use the scientific method in our lives every day making predictions about what will happen if I drive another 5 miles on an empty tank of gas, or add this much garlic to my dinner. What we don't do on a regular basis is test our hypothesis and see if the null holds true. Our minds are very good at creating null hypothesis and formulating our whole experiment, even though we have never tested our hypothesis. I think about living out in the woods, off the grid, away from everybody, and my hypothesis is, if I do that, then I will be happy and achieve long-lasting happiness. My null hypothesis according to this is, living off the grid and happiness are independent of each other. Now, my mind and yours like to think about the future happiness that something will bring if we attain it because we tell ourselves that this will bring that. You say to yourself that you already know that proving your hypothesis will yield these results, that doing this thing in the future will make you feel this way, and your absolute proof is what you conjured up in your mind. There are some people who test their hypothesis, like going off the grid for a month on BLM land, or living without electricity and going solar, but they only know the results that this brings by testing it. Would anyone's level of happiness be the same if one variable changed? Would I be happy off the grid if I used solar, and it was December, in the snow, and I couldn't generate enough electricity? Would you be happy buying the bigger house with that extra she-shed room which amounts to a higher electric bill and more property taxes, which means more work to pay for it and less time to enjoy your she-shed? We need to think about our null hypothesis and how variables might be independent of each other. And the combination is not like an ionic bond of sodium and chloride, which makes salt. Instead, two variables might not bring the results you wanted. So test yourself, perform the scientific method on yourself, rewrite your hypothesis, get data, prove yourself wrong or right, and in the end, be prepared to share your results for others to replicate. Their data may improve your experiment. This is an edited assignment I wrote for college, which was researched from several peer reviewed articles. This article doesn't reflect my personal opinions regarding this research, but it is important to know what the future may have in store for us, and it is also important that you do your own research on this to form your own opinions. This episode is very science based and very controversial, so please feel free to stop and pause if you need to look anything up or take a breather. CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, stands for Clustered, Regularly Interspaced Palindromic Repeats. It is a technology which bacteria naturally use to fight viruses, but was developed outside of bacteria to be used for gene editing and allows us to remove mutated DNA which can code for diseases or unwanted genotypes phenotypes by using a protein called Cas9. The use of this technology is still in the trial phase due to long-term unknown risks, safety concerns, and the ethics of creating genetically modified humans. CRISPR can be used to alter the DNA of an organism for enhancement or elimination of a disease. However, the altering of DNA is not allowed in human embryos, where the promise of this technology may prove to have global impacts, such as the elimination of sickle cell or other inheritable diseases. Currently, this technology is allowed in mice and certain primate subjects, and the use of human embryos remains controversial for a large variety of ethical and moral reasons. The efficiency of CRISPR to target these specific genes without creating a different mutation or producing an incomplete editing of a gene has a legitimate foundation because these results have been seen in prior CRISPR experiments. However, as the CRISPR technology continues to evolve and become more efficient, these concerns become less relevant to the continued use of this technology. There is also a concern for the unknown effects of the test subject and their offspring once the genes have been edited. The possibility of unintended consequences resulting from a permanent change to DNA is high, and those unintended consequences are still unknown, but are closely monitored and investigated during trials. There is also a concern regarding the link between genome editing and unknown phenotypic changes resulting from such editing, and since several genes can account for the biological outcome of an organism, modification to one gene may result in unknown changes to the other connected genes. One of the ethical dilemmas involving human embryos concerns the differing opinions and no official scientific documented date when an embryo becomes a person. So the lines drawn by various scientific religious, and government agencies are vast and conflicting. Research regarding CRISPR technology on the environment show potential concerns and applications for improvement. The use of this technology to edit the genome of insects may be beneficial to the environment because the genes could be altered to render the insect-borne diseases ineffective. This application would be useful in areas of the world where malaria is present, because the insects who would be carrying malaria could be altered to where they are unable to transfer the disease, unable to carry the disease, or die if they carry the disease. Insects could also be modified with genes, which makes them very susceptible to herbicides and pesticides, which could save the food crops and in turn, provide more food for a growing world population. However, the use of gene editing technology for insect control is not only expensive, it greatly depends on location and population control. The migration of humans and animals can't be contained, so animals carrying an insect-borne disease may spread to areas where the disease was not prevalent, and unintentionally transmit the disease through various forms of contact. There is a possibility of requiring chemical pesticides and environmental modification while the technology and application of genetically modified insects is being studied and tested. However, the altered genes of genetically modified insects reduce fitness, which means they are less likely to survive. Unless the altered genes for these insects are able to be transferred to non-genetically modified wild populations of insects, then the likelihood of succeeding future generations of genetically modified insects are low, and the survival of wild, genetically modified disease-carrying insects are high. Although CRISPR has shown effective in several previous animal trials and is a naturally occurring system utilized by bacteria, scientists continue to use primates for tests because of their similarity to humans. However, the specific genes targeted in primate studies have shown varying levels of efficiency, and although continued testing is required to prove the usefulness, potential, and widespread application of this technology, the limits of single-subject gene-editing ethical issues, limits to number of animals that can be used for testing, requirements of labs and facilities, and errors in gene editing have created understandable restrictive conditions on the use of human genome and primate test subjects. The restriction and prohibition of human genome editing greatly depends on the governing laws of different countries conducting CRISPR trials, with more than 50 countries currently upholding restrictions on the use of clinical trials. A recent study published their findings on using CRISPR technology and found that the application creates adaptive and innate immune responses which fight against the CRISPR technology. This finding brings a further concern to a baby developing in utero if CRISPR is used to perform gene editing. Since the potential widespread scientific, potential, and future benefits compete with the individual, Scientific, and a population's ethical, moral, and religious laws of various countries, including different conclusions on when a human embryo is considered a person. This technology should be restricted for testing, preferably without animal and embryotic test subjects. This is my attempt at relating to anyone who is with a form of ptsd such as myself i have narcissistic abuse syndrome and if you read the list of symptoms i probably have had it or i am still working through it talking about the inner waves which come through are difficult for anyone to fully understand because experiences are unique and everyone's interpretation of what constitutes as minor or major on the problem scale is unique to them. I wrote this poem to give you a background on where I came from and what I am still going through, but no names or specifics are mentioned. If you find this poem reads you in a certain way, then it is correct based on your interpretation. But the real meaning behind each sentence is for me to keep. This is my attempt to describe my pain body, the collective trauma center which arises and I am learning to unravel and become loving too. With that being said, this episode is dark and can be triggering for some. I am currently seeking the help of a mental health professional. And I am not in danger to myself, so please don't worry. There are no issues with me being on this earth, and I fully intend to continue my healing journey. This is a story, and if you can relate to any of it, then I am glad that we found a connection. She was in her room with no one, and he came in with those repetitive words striking blows to self-developmental ego, and hurricane waves to emotional freedom. His driver is the woman who holds the gun that pleases her to taunt and marionette dance to her wishes. Slowly and daily, there is little more of the candle burning lower. As each footstep into the institution is a minefield of small feet wavering around the precious egos of little bullies. There is never an escape from the minute reminders of little worth. A window looked west for years, held dreams and temptations of running towards the weeds on the road in the same direction. One memorable attempt led to a beating from a creator with her supporting a whip. Actions taken and views interpreted were skewed from the beginning, never any chances to break free from the World War bubble which surrounded her. Relentless pattern dancing, endless lives, every encounter, frontiers cleared of every beautiful tree, angel on the left shoulder bound and tied to the deaf ear, eyes watered at the same dance, same tango, same conviction she knew they were guilty of. No last names and holding hands and fake fronts and we're fines and hush money and silences and excuses kept all ears plugged and smiles bloated. Years aren't years when they were never your own, and short lives are long when the life isn't nourished. The symptoms are textbook, but the perp is still loose. Slowly falling into delta, she waves her right to free speech, and an opening shines light in her thalamus. Years of guilt haunts and fleece the pathways created by arms pushing aside the parts of the brain. Words now create the road to open ears. Hear the new number station transmitting across the airwaves into karmic undoing. Make front page news that a clearing in a path has opened, To help break patterns of destruction from legacy ties to DNA. Let each word and open armed hugs still fall into naught. Every armed soldier in the white clone army marches to their protective rhythms. She plays with a dollhouse she once built that visibly fell apart. Yet it was her own. The glimpses into the world she has to clear out and up creates intrigue and doormats for some. Channels have opened. The world turns differently. The same mouths talk over hopeful ears. The ones that don't see the Rubik's Cube era of fun and puzzles don't want to play, and her attempts to find playmates among the white clone army always fail. Determination to reach the end of the field, knowing she tried everything, means more than being arm-in-arm with fellow rebels whose two ears and one mouth mean little to their conversational badgering. One day, the right ears will know. This episode marks the end of Season 1. I appreciate all of you from the bottom of my heart for all of the love, support, and encouragement you have given me over this past year. I am excited to keep this journey going, and just like from the start, this episode is based on past events which accumulated into this script. Teachers come in a variety of forms. And some manifest themselves in the worst people, in the most hurtful people, in the worst traits of people, and in the worst time for people. They have been some of my greatest teachers, because I have learned how not to be. So this poem is dedicated to those who have taught me the good by going through the bad. Thank you for being the asshole who didn't believe in me for more than 20 minutes at a time. I got a great lesson on how valuable time is. Thank you for being the one who assumed that since you are a man with six months more experience that you have the right to speak down to me. I got a great lesson on giving fucks about power and not feeding an ego machine. Standing up to you was one of the best days of my life. Thank you for being the friend who went from left to right and back to the left again really quick with emotions and decisions. I definitely got a great lesson on what not to do and who not to be. Thank you to the family who used me and left I miscalculated my significance in our relationship, and I received a great lesson on openness, acceptance, and self-love. Thank you to the family who knew I was the black sheep and tried to keep me down with their narcissistic households. I know exactly how not to raise myself or another person. Thank you. To the ex who took out their past hurt on my body and left bruises on me as if it was for them. I got a great lesson on how I wanted to be treated and what self-love should and shouldn't be. Thank you to the robber who took from my house what they felt was theirs. I got a great lesson on the value of security and the importance of non-attachment. Thank you to the doctor who told me I had cancer over the phone when he was wrong. I got a great lesson on learning to believe what you first hear. Thank you to the old friend who believed everything I did about building my house was wrong. I got a great lesson on what's important to other people and I found I love the character of my house more and more every year. Thank you to the people I have met who didn't think I would amount to anything because they had no idea what I was going through. I got a great lesson on who should and should not be in my life, and I have made much better decisions since then. Thank you to the people who believed the wrong, who spread the rumors and loved the lies. I got a great lesson on the people who I don't want to be around and was reminded that there are better and safer people in this world. Thank you, teachers, because nothing is bad as long as you learn from it. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow me on Twitter at Mind Chicken, or leave a review on iTunes. Listen to anywhere you listen to podcasts or visit chickenmindnuggets.com.